to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and as we get back into the swing of things here with training camps open across the NBA, I am once again joined by my fellow co-host. We're back to regular programming here, Joe Wolfon. What's going on, Wolf? Not too much, man. Uh, I'm going to apologize in advance for the state of my voice on this episode. Uh, I got a little bit too into the Blue Jays Yankees game last night, a game with massive playoff implications. And yeah, my voice suffered for it. So I'm going to do my best here, but it might be a little bit more gravelly than usual. This is like, this is going to be my radio. This is your, voice. This is your PJ Carlissimo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, um, I, I think, you know, obviously we're, we're going to get into uh, talking about a whole bunch of stuff on this episode, but we should mention just, uh, off the jump that here in Canada today, it is the first national day for truth and reconciliation, honoring uh, the victims and survivors of Canada's horrific residential schools where, you know, hundreds of thousands of Indigenous children were separated from their families and where thousands of them lost their lives. So for for our many, many listeners in Canada, um, just hoping that you know, you'll find some time today to reflect on that um, and reflect on the cultural genocide, I think, like, is, is really the only term that you can use that, that happened and is still happening today to the Indigenous people of this country. And, um, you know, I think that's obviously a bit of a somber note to start the pot on, but I think we'd be remiss if we didn't mention no, that. No, no, that's for sure, man. Well said. You know, obviously it's... <laughs> It was like a real blind spot for me in my education growing up. Like it took way too long for me to like even learn about residential schools and and get anything resembling a a sense of the scale and scope of the atrocities that happened there. Uh, And and I'm still in the process of of learning about it. And I think that's the first step. Um, And, you know, as far as reconciliation itself and making restitution, like, I think, you know, maybe consider a donation to the uh, Indian Residential School Survivor Society or any number of other uh, Indigenous-led foundations that are aiming to provide resources and and restitution to that community. It's not a lot, but it's a start, I think, and and we figure out, um, you know, kind of where we go from here. Well said. Um, As always, we are very appreciative of anyone who tuned in. Today to uh, hear us talk ball, like Wolfon said, you know, a bit of a somber note, but a necessary one, I think, to open the show on what is uh, an important day of remembrance in Canada. We know where we have to start this podcast from a basketball perspective. And unfortunately, it's not basketball related. Um, And it might lead to some guys not playing a lot of basketball this year. Uh, Where are we starting here, Wolfon, with the vaccination related stuff, man? Well, I'll say I'm disappointed in myself. You know, the, the last pod that you and I did together was an over-under themed episode where one of my most confident bets was the Brooklyn Nets over at 54 and a half wins. And somehow I, I didn't factor into the equation the possibility that Kyrie Irving might miss half his team's games because he doesn't want to get vaccinated against COVID-19. And now, you know, because of New York City's mandate, um, you know, essentially not like not allowing unvaccinated players to perform in massive public spectacles, uh, he's potentially 
at risk of sitting out all of their home games. I mean, it's going to be up to him essentially, like whether he wants to relent and get the shot or whether he's going to dig his heels in and continue to hold out for one reason or another. And I don't actually want to make light of it. Like I don't really care at this point, like how it affects the Nets. Like I'm, I'm more concerned with just the fact that, you know, a public figure like Kyrie Irving is taking the stand that he's taking for various unspecified reasons. And I know Kyrie himself is like, he said on media day that he wants to keep that private, asked that, you know, the media respect his privacy on this matter. And unfortunately, like, that's just not how it works right now. Like, this is a public health crisis. Kyrie is a very public figure. He is one of the most famous athletes in the world. He is one of the three best players on the best team in basketball. And you know, there's a chance that he is going to miss all of that team's home games because he's reluctant to get a shot that will protect him and the people around him from an infectious, deadly virus that has killed four and a half million people worldwide. Like, I'm sorry, but like, you don't get the benefit of privacy when the issue at hand could potentially affect everyone you come into contact yeah, and. I'm not buying the privacy thing either when, I don't know if you saw this, but on media day, he when he was holding that uh, presser where he was asking for privacy, he was also on Instagram live. And then when the presser ended and he had been hitting reporters with the like, you know, respect my privacy thing, he goes back on this Instagram live. He said, I hope you all enjoyed that. And he said that like a few times. And then, you know, then he says a little thing again about how, oh, the reporters should respect my privacy. But then he goes back into the like, you know, for everyone watching, I hope you all enjoyed that. And then he ends it by like to his followers saying like, don't say I don't do anything for you on here. Like, so he just, to me, it's like, no, nah, man, I'm not buying that you care about your privacy and nice and that. Like you're being Kyrie and you're trying to play games. I know we've had this discussion a thousand times over the last few years, and I've written about it too many times to count about, you know, what makes him so polarizing. And it's because for, you know, as straight up clownish as he can be sometimes and you know things whether it's the flat earth or stuff or this he also has this unbelievably admirable record of doing really good things for a lot of different people and really meaningful things off the court that actually like make an impact uh, in people's lives and in communities that he wants to touch and so yeah it is like polarizing because when he is you know maybe aloof or does something foolish you, you do have a lot of people that rock with that who what the good things he's done and and don't even want to um criticize him at all and then like i said you've got people on the other side who are so anti-kyrie that you know when he does the many good things he's done they almost see it as like they see right past it because they don't even want to give him credit at all and i've always tried to stay down the middle when it comes to kyrie but I, again, I think it's important that for as much as we praise all the good things he's done and he deserves that, like we need to be able to admit when he's an absolute clown, whether it was when he went on the flat earth or like stuff a couple of years ago or whether it's right now, man. And this is a perfect example. Like I said, when you, you know, you already laid out why, unfortunately, this is not a matter of privacy. 
I just explained why I thought that whole thing was a fraud anyway, because at, while he's asking for privacy, he's also essentially making a, a mockery of it to his Instagram followers and, and telling them he hoped they enjoyed basically the show he just put on. And then it's, it's just like little things too. Like even, you know, he had the, the famous tweet last weekend about taking your mask off or whatever it was like, you know, my mask is off time to take yours off. And then of course, cause it's Kyrie, you know, comes out later and says, well, it had nothing to do with COVID. It's about, you know, the, the metaphorical mask, which is fine. And he, he may have meant that, but come on, man, you, I, I don't believe for a second that he didn't know what that tweet was set off when you're talking about taking your mask off and having everyone else take their mask off in the middle of a once in a century pandemic that has involved this ridiculous divide and debate over masking and taking a mask off and you put that tweet out there whether you meant it to be related to the pandemic or not you cannot tell me that you didn't know the attention that would and and that's the stuff that bothers me with Kyrie where he does put stuff like that out there. He says just some completely moronic things, if we're being honest, and then gets defensive about why it's getting so much attention or why people want to ask him about it. It's like, yeah, man, because as you know, as you mentioned, you are a very public figure. And when you say ridiculous things or allude to ridiculous things that seem to hint at other things going on in the world right now, people are going to ask you about them. And yes, when your health decision, you know, or I don't even know if I would call that health, but yeah, sure. When your personal health decisions potentially keep you out for half the season when you are playing on the most high profile team. Yeah. People are going to ask you about it and they have a right to ask you about it. The thing about this is it's exactly. not just that, like, and that's, you know, so like the opponents of vaccine mandates want to frame it as that, like it should be a personal choice. And it's not like it doesn't only affect you. That's the thing to, I guess, to compare it to something else. Like if you want to suggest that like a vaccine mandate somehow violates your personal freedom, like that's, it's really no different. Well, it is different actually, but like you think about like people who, who I guess would suggest the same thing about like a seatbelt law and say that that is like a violation of your freedoms. Like it's, it's even dumber than that because if you decide not to fasten your own seatbelt, like you're not necessarily putting anyone else's safety at risk. And that's not the case when you choose not to protect yourself from a highly infectious virus that you can pass on to other people. Like to say nothing of, of how that helps contribute to like the spread of variants of said virus and how like it essentially keeps the virus alive. It's not just affecting you. It's not just a personal choice. And so we don't, I mean, I don't know if you have anything left to say about Kyrie. Like, we don't necessarily need to harp only on him because it wasn't just him. Like, we heard a lot of foolishness, frankly, from other players, um, you know, in that that Rolling Stone piece or on NBA Media Day, like Bradley Beal, Michael Porter Jr., Jonathan Isaac. I mean, there's Andrew Wiggins who, who tried to use the religious exemption loophole and had his application denied. And I think, um, you know, there's a quote from Michelle Roberts. I don't know, like, who reported it or, or where it was attributed, but she said something along the lines of, like, the NBA, all their, like, entire workforce, basically, players, referees, coaching staff, is, like, 90% fully vaccinated, which, like, when you compare it to the rest of the country, which is something like, you know, I think the eligible population is somewhere between 50 and 55%, 
looks really, really good. And maybe we should be talking about that, like how good a job the NBA is doing at getting its workforce vaccinated, rather than the fact that like this vocal minority of people uh, are not getting it or are hesitant to get it. And there's some truth to that. But like, you know, the, the unfortunate reality is like that minority is vocal. And like, it's, it's causing problems, right? Like it's causing problems potentially like between the league and the players union and like potentially like within the players union. I don't, I don't know what kind of conversations are happening there, but I'm sure there's like a lot of disagreement over how this should go. And I'm sure that there are players who feel that like every other player that they share a court with should be fully vaccinated. Like I, I, I don't know. I'm not privy to those conversations or those, those players thoughts, but like, but it, you know, in refusing to get a shot, you're re- you're not just causing problems for yourself. You're not just putting your own safety at risk. And I think that's like an important distinction to draw here. I think a lot of people lose sight of the fact that look, the NBA is a you know players alone. It's a community of about 450 people, give or take. And as I've said, like you're not just like any other section of society. You take 450 people, they're not going to all agree on things. They're not going to all like have the right way to like have the same way to go about things. They're not going to come up with the same solutions. They're not going to have the same personality. So the fact that just like society at large, you know, a segment of the NBA's population maybe uh, is hesitant to get the vaccine or has thoughts that maybe don't drive a science like that in and of itself is not surprising because again, it's, it's the same in society at large. So it's not even that like I'm surprised or but I think for me, it's just like the callousness and and the carelessness, the recklessness and the foolishness with which these players are speaking into a microphone. Like you mentioned Bradley Beal and, and I tweeted this, but like legitimately some of the dumbest few seconds I have seen from a human being speaking in a long time was Bradley Beal literally, I don't know if anyone saw this on media day, literally laughing about the fact that all the vaccine, quote unquote, all the vaccine does is prevent hospitalizations and using that as a crutch of like, why would I get this? Or like, why do we have to get this when all it does is like, he was admitting that he knows that this, like he believes it prevents hospitalizations and was laughing about that as if that was proving his point of like, well, that's not, I'm getting it. Like, why would I get this thing? All it does. And it's like, not, I know, not all it I know, does it, either, I know it's right? not like it also like significantly reduces the chances of you a getting the virus in the first place and b passing it 100%, on to somebody else. I know that but I'm saying even in his mind if that was the case the fact that he was laughing about the fact that like imagine just the the foolishness of whatever it is like I'm not it doesn't even have to just be vaccines but laughing about the efficacy of something that you're admitting prevents hospitalization it was just like we saw a lot of ridiculous things on media day, but that was the one that just had me like, like, am I watching this? Is this guy like, does he realize what he said? Does he realize how dumb he's coming off? Like, seriously, like if you're on team Bradley Beal and, you know, not to make this like a business thing, but for real, if you're representing Bradley Beal, if you're someone who is advising Bradley Beal, like you just got to be watching that press conference, just like nauseated because it quite frankly was nauseating. And, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think we have much left to say about this stuff. It's just, it's not so much that I was surprised these uh, thoughts exist in a collection of roughly 450 human beings. It's more so that some of the things that were said <laughs> into an open mic for the world to hear was just like, man, I, 
I mean, I hope these guys come to their senses, and I and I do wonder, like a couple of years from now, when we look back at this, how foolish some of these guys will feel. And to be honest, I hope they do feel right. And like you know, even to go back to the point, you know, what Michelle Roberts said about ninety percent of the league being vaccinated, and maybe like the focus should be on that. It's like I, I was honestly even disappointed by like the way that some of the vaccinated players have been handling this. Like, you know, there's like D'Angelo Russell who was fully vaccinated, like coming out in support of Kyrie and I guess like his right to decide what he wants to do. LeBron, who's been silent on this issue very strangely, like for a really long time coming out and saying like he is fully vaccinated, but he doesn't believe that he should be out here, you know, advocating for people to get the shot because he believes it's a personal choice saying that he had to do his own research before getting the shot and basically advocating for other people to do the same. And like, that's like that's disappointing as well to be perfectly honest like i i i guess i'm just at a point where i don't have a lot of patience left for people who who are choosing not to get the vaccine without a legitimate medical reason like the shots are all readily available all of the information about them is readily available and easily accessible like you can read all about mrna vaccines how they work what makes them safe you can read about the microscopic risks of like adverse side effects to the shots and like especially when you weigh those risks against the risks of like being unvaccinated and contracting covid like all of that information is out there and you know this thing where people are still saying that they need to quote do their own research whatever that means like the research has been done and it's been done by people who specialize in immunology and virology like if if you're not a doctor or a scientist who's been clinically trained in those fields, like you're not qualified to be doing your own research and just holding out under the pretense of do the pretense of doing said research, like that doesn't make you a free thinker or an advocate for civil liberties or whatever. It just makes you really stubborn and selfish. And so I think that's why, like you know, it's disappointing that this is like. Be- become like the central focus of NBA media day, right? Like, I think we would all rather be talking about something else, but it's an issue. And and it, and it's like, especially if you, you know, you contrast it to the fact that like I, NBA arena staff, like if they're not vaccinated, they're going to lose their jobs, right? Like they, you can't work in an NBA arena and not be fully vaccinated. So there's like a double standard there where like, these players want to have, I mean, maybe those same players like Kyrie, I'm sure would advocate for like arena staff to be able to have the choice as well. But like, that's not the case because they're interacting with members of the public in like an enclosed space. And like this virus is like still very much a part of our lives. Um, I think that should apply to everybody. Like, and, and not to make this about us, but like as members of the media, like I ha- I still haven't decided like how I'm going to approach this coming season. Like if I want to be in arenas or not. And, you know, if like, I, I think Toronto came out recently and basically said that unvaccinated players are still going to be allowed to yeah. play it, it, like uh, ga- games at Scotiabank arena this year. And so, you know, to Kyrie's point about wanting it to be like a private matter and wanting it to be like everybody's decisions, like, I don't know, like that, like, how do I make that decision then? Like going, going to an NBA game and like not necessarily knowing if like the players that I'm going to be 
hanging out around are vaccinated or not, you know, and then having like an unvaccinated toddler at home, like those are considerations that affect other people, you know? Yeah, man, it's, uh, it's clearly not an an ideal situation uh, from a public health perspective, let alone from, you know, an NBA perspective. And I'm sure there are some people listening right now that just and we are going to get to some basketball talk, by the way. But I, I was going to say, I'm sure there are people listening right now that want to just talk basketball right now when we're going to. But th- this is not going away. Like this is, especially if these players, you know, like Kyrie, like Wiggins, the ones that play in markets where they have to be vaccinated to play in home games. Like if they don't get vaccinated, this becomes a basketball issue, whether you like it or not. Because, yeah, one of the three best players on the championship favorite, you know, by a mile not playing half the season in games he's eligible, let alone, you know, Kyrie's usual like injury issues and all that, like that matters. Andrew Wiggins, you know, with the improvements and and the somewhat consistency he found last season and like the role he started to fill with the Warriors, you know, if he cannot play half of the Warriors games, especially early in the season when they're still waiting for Klay Thompson, that affects the Warriors, you know? Like, so even if you are the type of person that is saying, to hell with the public health side, which obviously we are not there. But even if you are that person and you you just want to strictly talk about this from a basketball perspective, there is no way to avoid this being the central issue in the NBA right now. And it will continue to be until either the laws change, which newsflash, they're not going to, or these players right. well, get vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, right. And, and I think, you know, if the laws change, it will just be like, more markets enacting For real. those same yeah. mandates about player about players eligibility to play uh if they're if they remain unvaccinated like that's the only thing that's going to change yeah. right what the nba is doing without enforcing like a strict vaccine mandate i, I kind of feel like they're doing everything they can to like incentivize getting the shot like unvaccinated players are going to be subject to like way stricter and more rigorous testing regimens uh, like they're not going to be allowed to go out and eat with their team, like when they're on the road. Um, they'll just have less freedom of movement in general, uh, and and way more time on the sidelines if if them or someone in their circle tests positive. And then I think the latest piece of news was that uh, players who do have to sit out games in the markets where unvaccinated players aren't going to be eligible will be docked pay for the games that they miss. So I think it's you know they're they're not they're not going to um, you know, force an unvaccinated player to basically either get the shot or sit out. They're just going to make it really uncomfortable for the players who haven't gotten it uh, to continue to do so. Yeah. All right. What do you say? Should we talk about the basketball portion of this pod, which is our annual list of breakout players? I would like right, that. Let's yeah. take the break, come back and do that. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon. We're going to pick three players each. Well, we might overlap on some and end up with less than six total, but we will have three to six players between the both of us 
that we have selected as our 2021-2022 breakout candidates. I assume some will be really obvious and maybe one or two will be a little more off the board. Well, I tried to go a little bit off the board just so that we wouldn't have overlap. I'm curious actually to see if we do uh, or don't, if, but if, um, I think the, the first one I've got is probably the most likely one to, to overlap. Gil Alexander There's Walker. our first overlap. Yeah, that's yeah? our first overlap. <laughs> Um, but by the way, before before yeah, inter- I mean, like I, I'm going to interrupt you here. It's you brought him up first, but I just want to know: Did you see Stan Van Gundy talking about him on NBA TV? Please tell me you did. Okay, so no, Pelicans fans were were uh, well. I was going to say laughing about this. I think they were a little more frustrated. But Stan Van Gundy spoke about Nikhil Alexander Walker on NBA TV uh, recently, and about basically about him being a potential like breakout candidate this year, and he referenced the differences in Nikhil's numbers as a starter last year and as a reserve and was like kind of extolling the virtues of like why he should start with the obvious caveat being, if anyone here forgot, Stan Van Gundy was his coach last year and was the one deciding (laughs) whether he started or came off the bench. So obviously I know it's not that simple for NBA coaches. I know there are politics involved. I know there are, you know, it's not as simple as just him being able to start who he wants, even though it, it might, seem like that's a ridiculous statement what I just said but it really isn't that simple and so I don't know maybe him going on tv and saying that was his own way of saying he actually wanted to start him I don't know but the optics of it were just genuinely hilarious like the guy who coached Alexander Walker last year now on tv saying well like this guy's a break candidate and here's why like here's where here were his numbers as a starter and it's like well if only his coach had given him more starts like <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I mean, he did like, it it was a bit of a tale of two seasons for him, right? Like, I think he really struggled to start, but if you look at his numbers, even just like post all-star break, he averaged 15.4 points a game, shot 38% on 6.7 three-point attempts after really struggling with the shot early in the year. And he shot 39% on pull-up threes, albeit on a pretty low volume, um, but I think just generally he started to look a lot more comfortable and confident creating for himself. And like, you know, he has a pretty smooth handle. I will say he's not explosive. Like he's not the guy who's going to, he doesn't have like a lightning quick first step. He's not going to dust guys off the dribble necessarily or create a ton of separation for his jumper. But much like his cousin Shay, he's gotten very adept at changing speeds to keep defenders off balance. He likes to snake the pick and roll. He'll throw in, you know, a hesitation, an inside out dribble. He can get a defender on his hip and put him in jail. And then when he does that, he's got a nice touch on his floater. And he's got this very high release point on his jumper too. So like he can kind of get his own shot against just about anyone. I think where he still needs to improve is finishing at the rim. He was at 51% in the restricted area last year. Uh, where you'd think his length and his touch would really help him. Like, I, I think it's just that in the past, he's he's kind of rushed those finishes. And, and that's just something I feel like that improves with reps and confidence and feel because the tools are definitely there for him to be a really good finisher. And like, you know, beyond that, I'd like to see him embrace contact a bit more and get to the free throw line more often. Um, uh, he needs to improve as a defender beyond just like playing the passing lanes and gambling for steals. Uh, and he, he has a long way to go as a playmaker, but I don't think that's, I don't really think that's ever going to be an elite skill for him or like a focus for him, right? Like I think 
his ideal role is as a scoring guard. And in that respect, I think he can be really good as early as this season. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think, um, you know, the potential for him to be a more consistent starter, the numbers Van Gunny threw out there or whatever, but I think him as a more consistent starter uh, with all of the pluses that you mentioned that he brings to the table, even with some of those negatives, still kind of like drawing them back. I, I, I just think he's in line for that kind of like, not necessarily the star breakout, but the type of year where even casual fans watching this guy realize, like, all right, that's a good NBA player. And um, if Nikhil Alexander-Walker is a good, or if he's like a good starter, you know, consistent starter by the end of the year, to me, that is a breakout kind of given where he came from. And it's also a real positive for the Pelicans who need a lot of positives, man, like going forward to, to write this ship and extracting the maximum potential out of Nikhil Alexander-Walker would be a really nice boost for their future projections. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I'm in the minority on this, and I wrote about it recently, but I, I kind of feel like the Pelicans had an okay offseason and, and that they're going to be pretty good this year. Like, uh, like I think they're going to win 45-plus games. Assuming Zion's healthy, right? That was another thing yes. that came out of media day, which was that apparently he broke his foot and nobody found out about it somehow, which... Uh, yeah, not not a great sign for a guy who, in his young career, has already dealt with, um, you know, some concerning lower body injuries, and especially with his body type and the high impact way that he plays, uh, is is going to be a concern moving forward. If you want to get, you know, ghoulish and morbid, and and I guess look at the silver lining in what's an unfortunate situation for one of the bright young stars in the league, like I've said this before, like I I, I always kind of thought that the notion that he would turn down a super max extension and like take the qualifying offer to hit uh, unrestricted free agency in year five or after year five. I just feel like this is another example of why like a player like him, I just don't think is going to be in a position to pass up that much guaranteed money. If you're a Pelicans fan, <laughs> like that's one potential thing that you could point to and say like, yeah, this is a reason that we'll probably be able to keep yeah. this guy beyond his rookie contract. Yeah. And, and, you know, a, a conversation for another podcast could be about the rules of restrictive free agency and whether they're good uh, for the league and its players or not. Um, I mean, pretty clearly not good for its players, but... If that's the silver lining of uh, Zion's latest foot injury, then uh, we got to acknowledge the rusty copper lining in uh, in there too. And that's that, oh man, I look, love Zion, love his game, obviously love his potential when he's on the court and healthy, but like, I've got my Zion doubts, man, with this very checkered injury history now. And, and as you mentioned, lower body injuries for like a pretty big guy. And, you know, I, I don't like I hope I'm wrong for real because the guy is just a treat to watch. Seems like an awesome kid, like all of that stuff. Seems like a great young man. We all want him to succeed. But how can you not be concerned given the type of injuries that are piling up here very early in his career? Hope I'm wrong. Yeah. But yeah, I, I guess just to to tie off the uh, Nikhil point, like you mentioned Van Gundy talking about his numbers as a starter. Uh, you mentioned, you know, seeing him, I guess, as like a solid, consistent starter. I, I do, like I, the opportunity will be there. Lonzo's gone. Eric Bledsoe's gone. Like the Pelicans are basically going to be starting a whole new backcourt. Um, and we know Devontae Graham will be one of those guards. I suppose there's a chance that they just start huge with like Ingram at the two 
and someone like Najee Marshall sliding into the starting five instead. Um, I definitely think Alexander Walker is a good candidate to start, but even if he doesn't, the, the six man role, I kind of feel like suits him pretty well. It does. Well. Yeah. Especially as, as you were mentioning, like he, he's probably best suited as a scoring guard and mm-hmm. um, not that he would be, you know, the one dimensional type of like off the bench scoring guard, but you know, NBA history is rife with, uh, you know, sixth man roles being dominated by those like scoring guard types. And yeah, especially on a team where they might desperately need those points off the bench. Um, right. Yeah. It wouldn't be a bad idea at all. And and it could end up being the thing where like, maybe he doesn't start, but he's playing starters minutes, right? Like closing games potentially. Right. But uh, yeah, I think it's interesting because there's going to be a lot of mouths to feed with that starting lineup in terms of on ball touches between point Zion and like Ingram and, and his proclivity for freelancing with the ball, JV in the post, you know, Devonte Graham obviously likes to operate with the ball in his hands. So it, it might behoove Nikhil to come off the bench, like, and just spend more time with the ball in his hands, because I think you, you could argue that he's providing more value as a ball in hand guard than as an off ball guard. Although, I think he's also like good at attacking off of the catch and maybe better at doing that than initiating from a standstill. So I don't know. There's a lot, I guess, that will go into that decision. But I do think either way, like he he is going to have a breakout year. All right, you ready for mine? I think if I, there's, I'm very confident we're not overlapping on mine. All right, uh, I want to see if you can guess it though. It's a guy I talked about a little bit last year in like the second half of the season. Give me the division, and I'll see the Northwest Division. Northwest it is Division. Alexei Pokashevsky, baby. Come My on, guy, man. Poku, who I know you're not high on. It's not even that I'm not high on him. I just like, I have no idea what he is at this point. I don't think we're actually going to know for like a few years. Still. I don't know if we'll know for sure what he is by the end of the year, but I think he will have established himself as much more of an NBA regular and potential star by the end of this season. With that kind of potential. okay, I mean, I think that's super optimistic. But I lay mean, out your it, case. The the stuff I saw from him, especially down the stretch last year when he started getting more minutes, you know, I I kind of raved about him last year. When look, the efficiency was awful. Uh, anyone watching him or looking at the numbers knows that there were games, and I know you know where he looked like he did not belong on an NBA court. There were also games where he looked like one of the better players on the court out of nowhere. And I need to remind people, this guy was not just the youngest player in the NBA last season. He's younger than Cade Cunningham. He is a basically seven footer. Not basically, he's listed as seven feet. He's a seven footer with just like tremendous playmaking abilities. And while the shooting numbers haven't really come yet, like the shooting ability is there. And when you combine his playmaking his ball handling, his shooting at his size. I think this guy has the tools and apparently the work ethic and the attitude to make the most of his talents. And if he makes the most of his talents with like that between the size and the skill set, this guy is going to be a very, very, very interesting NBA player and should be a very good NBA player. And one of the biggest drawbacks last season was the fact that he looked like he was 45 pounds total soaking wet. Now, he may never fill out and become like a super muscular dude. He probably never will. But 
whether it's listening to Thunder coach Mark Dagnalt talk about um, the fact that Pokashevsky's uh, strength building was like their number one priority for him in the offseason, whether it's uh, the just gargantuan Dwayne Johnson-like meals Poku was posting on social media uh, recently, uh, you know, in an effort to pack on the pounds, like with the uh, Thunder's plan in mind. If he comes back just, you know, with the experience, with more strength, uh, playing more consistent minutes, which again, if you look at like the back half of last season, basically from like March on, he went from being a sometimes DNP guy to all of a sudden being a pretty consistent part of the rotation. If he can find some consistency minutes wise and everything else just kind of like incrementally builds, I really think the Thunder have like a super, super exciting player on their hands. And again, similar, maybe not at the same level as Alexander Walker, but I'm not saying he's going to break out as a star this year, but I do think this guy's going to go from like, okay, a few people like me just like raving about him on a podcast to like the average NBA fan knowing, oh, like that kind of funky looking kid in OKC. Yeah, that that seven foot freak in OKC like has game. And I, I think there will be that kind of breakout this year. And I think he's going to surprise a lot of people. Also, like if you look at, from March on last year, he played like 28 minutes a game. Again, the efficiency wasn't necessarily there, but he averaged about 11 points, six rebounds, three assists, and a block. On a G League team. Hey, playing against NBA competition. <laughs> and playing poorly, man, to be clear. Look, again, I'm not, I don't even want to come off as a Poku hater. I just think like, he, he to me is like a ball of unmolded clay. And so it's like, if you want to tell me you think that he's going to be a superstar like i'm not saying i don't believe I didn't say that I think he's gonna be a superstar. like or, or you have said i that think he's got no? i think he's got superstar potential i'm not, i'm not willing to bet on that yet but i'm will i'm willing to bet on him becoming a good nba player if you're saying that in 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 his like age 19 season he is going to have a breakout that's going to like put him on a ton of people's radar i feel like you're saying he's on a star track like that's what that wouldn't this be his age 20 season wasn't last year's age 19 season he won't turn 20 until 2022, but he will turn 20 at some point this season. Yeah, so that, that still makes him the age of, of a, like a, a second-year player then. Mm. Anyway, whatever. This is not the point of the argument that we're having right now. I'm not, I'm not even trying to have an argument. I just think that it's maybe like I'm looking at this with an unsophisticated eye. And there are people smarter than me, like you know yourself included, who <laughs> see things that I'm just not seeing. I just think like the flashes of that star potential last year were like very fleeting. Like there were a couple of games where he looked like, you know, a competent NBA player. And I get that he's super young and I get that there are like baseline skills there that could develop and make him into a dangerous player because a guy who's seven feet tall, who has that kind of ball skill can be super, super valuable. But like there there, there was also like a lot of, negatives yeah <laughs> like their last season and i i think i said it last year like the, the few games that i watched him play early in the year were legitimately some of the worst play that i've ever seen from an nba or so i just think it's going to be more of like a long-term project and i don't see that breakout coming for him this year um but i'd love to be proven wrong like i think that would be like a really fun story especially because i <laughs> 
it would just, I don't, I don't necessarily want good things for the Oklahoma City Thunder franchise. Like I, I've spoken of my distaste for that franchise and how they go about their business before in the past. But like, if only for the sake of like, if he's really good next year and like Shea like continues to build on what he did last season, I feel like they might just have no choice but to be like, oh, like we really have something here, you know, like we should actually maybe just try and like be a decent NBA team rather than like shutting these guys down halfway through the season and going into the tank again. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm with you there. The thing I'd say with Poku too is that for as bad as he looked last season in, at times and for our stretches of the season, which I'm not debating, there are a lot of really, really, really good NBA players that looked very damn bad in their rookie seasons, especially ones that entered the NBA as young as him. And the thing I'd say with him is like, if he had been a more touted prospect, you know, I know he was like a mid first round pick, but had he been, you know, more of a consensus, like top tier pick, someone that people really knew about, I think people just would have ended up being more impressed because they would have been like paid more attention. When you like consider a guy, again, his age and the combination of size and skill set, having games as the youngest player in the NBA of 29 points on 10 of 19 shooting, a six block game, 25 points on nine of 14 shooting, 23 points on seven of 12, like he had these games where I think if he had been a more watched or highly touted prospect to the casual fan, I do think more people would be talking about him as a breakout candidate. And because maybe he wasn't known as that guy. And yeah, a lot of people and even really very smart basketball observers like yourself did see so much of the bad. I don't know. I just feel like he's like slept on in a lot of ways, in, in ways that I think guys with his ceiling aren't usually slept on. I don't know, man. I think he get like, maybe it's just me and like my sort of like Twitter timeline or the basketball circles, I guess, that, that I run in. But like, I feel like if anything, there was like an outsized focus on his rookie year, given how, given how poorly he played. Like the people got so excited about the flashes because he is like a bit of a basketball anomaly just in like the way that he looks and the way that he plays. Like, and I think, players like that tend to generate a lot of buzz and a lot of hype because um, everyone is like wants to see something that they aren't used to seeing or that they haven't seen before. And I feel like, you know, he, I guess has the potential to grow into something like a seven foot point. Guard. Second, second in the uh, NBA if, last season in assists among guys who were seven feet plus. Again, like somebody had to collect those assists in OKC and like they, they put the ball in his hands and said like, go ahead, lose us some games. And he did. And again, I I feel like I'm coming off as so negative. I'm I'm not even that negative about him. I just think he's super young and super raw and he's going to need a long time to, uh, to develop on both sides of the ball. But I actually think, you know, this segues nicely to the next player I want to talk about because this, to your point, is a player who had a god awful rookie season and like very quietly last year made one of the more remarkable first year to second year leaps in my recent memory. Um, and that is Jordan Poole, nice. who was was very bad as a rookie um, and was actually, you know, genuinely good last year, especially after he went down to the G League uh, for a stint. He tore it up in Santa Cruz and he got recalled. And after that, like, he was one of the most important players for the Warriors. Uh, he, he's a great movement shooter. He's got a super quick release. He's an unpredictable mover off the ball. And he can handle the ball and shoot off the dribble in a pinch. Like I, those aren't really his strengths right now, but he's shown the ability to do those things. And I think, you know, the next stage for him is to 
do that at like an even higher level. Um, and I think maybe the thing that stood out most is that he shot 55% from two point range after he was at 39% from two as a rookie. And so he really, you know, he improved as a finisher, but a lot of that was helped by his cutting, which was very sharp. And that was helped by the fact that he started to have real gravity as a shooter and he got to be quite good at leveraging that gravity into, you know, overplays on handoffs and on pin downs. And that opened up, you know, backdoor cuts and hard closeouts that he was able to attack and get to the rim. So, you know, it like if he continues <laughs> along that development track, he should be an all-star this year, basically. Like that's that's how exponential the growth was from year one to year two for him. And I just think like he's become so very important to the Warriors, especially with Clay not due back probably until at least December. And then presumably having to be eased back once he returns and Wiggins may be set to sit out some home games. Like they desperately need pools offensive juice. And I think he's capable of giving it to them. Like I wouldn't be shocked at all if he proved to be their second leading scorer this year. But he, he was really good last year to your point. And uh, his importance to this team has increased Quite a bit, especially if Wiggins really does have to miss at least half the season. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good off-the-board one. I uh, have a lot less negative to say about him than you had to say about Alexei Pokashevsky. Uh, <laughs> even though I believe Pokashevsky will end up the better player overall. Um, but no, I think uh, I think Poole's like a good pick off the board. And a guy that will mm-hmm. factor into a team that if things do break right or Clay does come back like Clay, Or maybe if Wiggins, you know, smartens up and ends up playing. Half- like this is a team with... I don't know if you believe it because I think we've been um, sort of differing opinions there on the Warriors ceiling. But like to me, this is a team that still can get in the championship picture if things break right. And uh, you know, if we're talking about Jordan Poole becoming a very important piece of a potential even fringe contender, I think that's a pretty damn impressive breakout for a guy, as you mentioned, that was on no one's radar after a nasty rookie mm. season and is now you know in this conversation. Right. Well, I think... You know, that sort of cuts both ways because, yeah, I think that's, you know, it, it is an incredible development story for him to have come as far as he has in such a short amount of time. And like the fact that he has become like a really important player for, you know, at least a, a team that figures to be fighting for, you know, a, a proper playoff spot and to get out of the play in, right? I also think the fact that Jordan Poole you know, for all the nice things I just said about him, is such an important player for the Warriors, is still an indictment of the yeah, Warriors. He's still to Jordan a Poole. Extent. And, that's, and, that's why, and that's why I'm, you know, like I, I think they can be really good. I think a lot still rests on Clay and how good he looks when he comes back. Um, but I will say this. I'll throw a stat at you. Um, and it's a very small sample, okay? Jordan Poole and Steph Curry, they only played 221 minutes together last season mainly because they needed Poole to carry the Stephless bench units offensively. But uh, I'll give you a guess as to the Warriors' net rating in those 221 minutes that they played together. Steph and Poole both on the court? Well, now that you're asking it, I feel like it's going to be something ridiculous. So I'm going to say like plus 15 per 100 possessions. It's higher than plus Plus 20. It's plus 17.9 per 100 possessions. Again, 221 minutes tiny sample but I think that does speak to how good the Warriors can still be 
when Steph plays with another movement shooter who also has gravity, also moves well without the ball, like can also do things with the ball in his hands. Like when it's not just incumbent on Steph to like drive the offense on his own, um, that team can still be really, really good. And that, you know, that's that's a good omen potentially for what they could look like when Clay comes back. If Clay still has that, you know, incredible off ball mojo. Uh, and if the, you know, the the knee and Achilles injuries haven't sapped his ability to, you know, move around the way that he does to get his shot off as quickly as he does, like all those things are going to be really important. But if he is, you know, let's say 90% of what he was before he got injured, then yeah, this Warriors team has some juice and could potentially get into the title mix. So uh, two of mine are already off the board because we we overlapped on NAW. I went with my boy right. Poku. Uh, I had a hard time picking one last one because for me it came down to like go- going off the board or just going with the guys that I actually think are like legit and not even like a Poku type, like a legit, you know. And so the, uh, to me there's like the obvious one. Like the most obvious one to me is probably OG and Anobi. Um, whether you're sitting here in Toronto like we are. You you picked that's, him last I, year. And that's though. what I was going to say. You, I, but the problem is I picked him last year. And though he did break yeah. out in his own way, I think the breakout coming this year is of a much different variety, especially with Pascal Siakam uh, sitting for probably the first month or so of the season. Jaron Jackson was another one that I thought coming off of injury mm. um, last year, you know, only played what, like 11 games. Uh, I think he's a guy that he could break out in a way where like he just makes a much bigger impact, but... Jaron Jackson's like a pretty known commodity-ish at this early stage of his career. Um, so then I was picking between two guys, and I'm hoping neither one of these takes you as, a, as an overlap. I was then came down to Darius Garland and Tyrese Maxey. I didn't have Garland just because I feel like Garland right. already had a mini breakout yeah. last year. Um, Maxey was like one of my yeah. last and, cuts. Uh, and, and I also kind of figured that you would pick him, yeah. which is why I, I went elsewhere. But like... I, the reason that's an obvious one is because of how badly exactly. Philly needs and, him to be. And I do year, genuinely right? believe like Maxi, you know, ha, has some good juice to him. Um, you know, he For sure. he slid a bit as his rookie year went on. Like he had that great start to his rookie season. And I think maybe the expectations for him maintaining that were quite unfair because rookies in the NBA just usually don't maintain that level of play all year, especially on both ends. But look, between I think his skill set and what the Sixers desperately need, both from that position, but in general, from a body to fill that position with Ben Simmons potentially just not showing up ever for this team ever again. Uh, actually, likely not showing up for this team ever again. They need someone to fill not just like ball handling duties, but they need someone who can handle the ball, who can shoot it, who can pull up, who can create for himself. And yeah, look, is that a lot to ask of a second year Tyrese Maxey, who I'm not even sure necessarily has like star potential? Yes, that's a lot to ask of a guy, especially if Philly wants to remain a contender or in the running for the number one seed in the East, anything close to that. But I do think like between what he can do with the ball in his hands, um, you know, with some natural improvement from year one to two, and also with some of the help around him, like, Losing Ben Simmons is going to hurt, but like, let's not forget that Joel Embiid was very much in the MVP race last season. When, you know, when healthy and and for a large chunk of the season, and for stretches of the year, actually looked like maybe the best player alive. And 
Um, with Ben Simmons out of the way, I think he can more naturally dominate in the way that his game should. Tobias Harris, if he can do what he did in the regular season last year and replicate what he did, that takes a little pressure off of Maxi in the position he's going to get thrust into. And I think if he can kind of like find that that perfect middle ground where it's like he's taking a step, he's taking normal responsibility, he's filling this position they need, but he's also, you know, playing off of guys like Joel and Tobias and just kind of like filling those gaps uh, where they need it in terms of a little more shot creation, in terms of the ball handling duties, in terms of just like being somewhat of a floor general, but not in like the traditional sense. If if he can just kind of fill those um, roles and fill the gaps between Embiid and Harris, I think he, uh, I think he's going to become like a real favorite, not just like a fan favorite, but like a favorite of the organization and of his teammates, of guys like Embiid and Harris in Philly. Um, and I think it would be a great story because yeah, you know, there, there's just been so much, rightfully so, spoken about with the Ben Simmons saga, and we'll see, you know, what they end up getting for him. But they have a really good young player sitting there who, you know, I think can check a lot of boxes for them. And, you know, it's kind of similar from the poker situation when I was saying, like, he's got the shooting ability, even though the numbers don't show it. Like, I think Maxi ended up shooting only, like, if I'm not mistaken, what, 31% from deep? Yeah, he shot 30% from deep last season. So I, I realize it's hard to say he's a shooter, but I do think, like, the tools and the mechanics are there. And he had stretches of the season where it's like, no, the guy can shoot. I do think the numbers will come up as his career progresses. Um, so yeah, I, I just think everything is kind of falling into line where he should make a name for himself this year. He has just like a lot of things in his bag yeah. already. I, I think a, a, a little bit more rim pressure from him could go a long way because he is very quick with the ball. He can break down a defense at the point of attack. He gets into the teeth of the defense, but and this is going to sound strange coming from me, you know, like a, an advocate, a staunch advocate of the floater and someone who has, uh, you know, written at length about its importance in today's the NBA. The foremost piece of writing He's, on the floater, if I may say. <laughs> I appreciate you saying that. Um, so, you know, having said all that, like Tyrese Maxey is too dependent on his floater. Mm -hmm. Like he will get into the teeth of the defense but he will stop short and put that floater up rather than trying to continue all the way to the rim. And that is the biggest reason why he had like an insanely low free throw rate in his rookie season, because a guy who can penetrate the way that he can should not have a free throw rate that low. And, and like even his at rim frequency, like it's just not where it, where it could be or should be, frankly, uh, given the tools that he possesses and like his speed and his shiftiness. Like I, I would like to see that from him, this him just making more of a concerted effort to like finish some of those drives at the rim, you know, rather than from floater range. And like that floater is still going to be a very valuable shot for him. He's quite good at it. Um, but I think he just needs to lean on it a little bit less. Uh, and, and the three point shooting is going to be a, a big swing skill for him as well, obviously. But um, I'm excited about him. I think he's going to be good. Like he looked awesome yeah. in summer league for you know whatever stock you want to put in that um and like we said off the top you're just going to be so important to philly this year um especially you know obviously it's pending whatever happens with simmons and what they get back for him but in the meantime assuming simmons actually doesn't end up reporting at any point and he's just holding out and they're waiting until they get a trade package they like 
they're going to be depending a lot on Tyrese Maxey as like, you know, basically like their yeah. lead guard. And and I do think that him getting off to the start, I think we're, we both think he's capable of getting off too. If he can kind of help them not just hold their heads above water, but like be something closer to what they envision themselves as, right? If Embiid's rolling and Tobias is doing what he did last year and Maxey's taking the step we envisioned for him, they should still be really good. And I think that will make it easier or at least a little more palatable for them to see if they can still wait out for a good offer for Simmons, you know, as opposed to if, if Maxie's not the player, we think he can be early on and the Sixers are in desperate need of a lead ball handler or whatever the case may be, then the pressure is really on Maury and company to get a deal done, whatever that means, you know, and, and maybe accept a deal that isn't the best uh, in their minds. So I, I actually think Maxie's play even impacts how willing they might be to pull the trigger on a Ben Simmons deal before they're actually ready to. Yeah, no, that's a, an interesting point. It's like, how patient are they really willing to be? And, you know, what to them, I guess, would constitute a disastrous enough start that they decided it, they just had to move on a deal and maybe wind up taking one that they're unhappy with. Whereas, you know, if if they get off to a strong start and Maxi looks really good, then yeah, you're, you're 100% right. Like, I think that would definitely make them feel a lot more comfortable waiting things out. All right, my last pick. Player for the Orlando Magic, if you can believe it, one Chuma Okiki. Wow, talk he, about uh, off the board, it, but not not a bad pick. I think if we have any Magic fan listeners, they wouldn't think that this is such an off the board pick um, because he was a, a highly touted prospect a couple of years ago. He slid in the draft to number 16 because he had suffered an ACL injury that caused him to miss his entire rookie year. He didn't even start getting regular run this past season until like midway through the season, but um, you know, when he did finally start to play and obviously his playing time shot up when the magic gutted their roster at the trade deadline, but I thought he flashed a lot of upside. Like I, the big selling point with him has always been his, his defensive potential. Like he has incredible size on the wing. He's like six, seven, two thirty with the seven foot wingspan. Showed some shooting but, pop too, man. And that's the thing. Like, so you know, I think on the defensive side, he's got the physical skills, but he's also like very intuitive and alert and his help rotations for a first year player, I guess if you considered him a first year player, were, were pretty advanced. Uh, and he just profiles as like a major disruptor, right? Like gets his hands on a lot of balls, um, maps the floor well and, and can blow stuff up on the backside, like can protect the rim a bit. So I think he's a strong defender already who's only going to get better. But, you know, to your point, offensively, he can be a great shooter. Like, it, he shot it very well from mid-range last year. He was inconsistent from three, but his form looks good to me. Um, I think he probably needs to speed up his release if he's really going to bump the volume up. He, he around like 35%, Sorry, didn't he? Like yeah, and I think, you know, the most encouraging thing to me was he shot 35% from above the wow. break. And that's where the vast majority of his threes were coming from. Like he wasn't just spotting yeah. up in the corner. Like most of his looks were coming above the break and he hit 35% of them, which as a rookie, like, I think that's really encouraging. Um, but like I said, the, the release is kind of slow. Um, and I think if he's going to be like a volume three point shooter, he needs to speed that up. But like definitely the outline of a very good shooter is there and he can do other stuff. Like he can pass, 
Uh, and he was pretty effective also at scoring out of the post last season. Like he, he's very strong, so he can do damage against smaller players, but he's also got just a nice little turnaround fade. So he can do it with, with finesse or he can do it with force. And, you know, the magic are just going to give him every opportunity this season to solidify his off the dribble game. And we even saw that last year after the deadline, like they featured him quite a bit. He was running some second side pick and roll doing a bit of self-creation. I will say he looked pretty stiff doing that stuff, but I think that's something that can improve with more reps because he has just great feel for the game. And like I said, he can pass uh, and he's just going to get every opportunity to figure stuff out on what is frankly an extremely talent-strapped magic team. I also, in like the... You know, not going to pretend I watched a lot of him last season, but uh, in the little bit I did watch of him, I saw, and I don't know if he actually ended up logging any minutes uh, as like a small ball five, but I saw a lot of like small ball five potential there. Um, and whether that happens this year or it's something like down the line, like I think, I think you mentioned it too, like his backside defense, like he's got some like rim protecting chops as a helper between his just general defensive prowess and yeah, if if the shooting just continues to kind of like trend upwards, like you you almost got like kind of the makings of a pretty versatile guy there that can can definitely fill some small minutes as like a small ball five with some floor stretching ability. Like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there. Yeah, and I actually, you know, I remember a couple episodes back we were trying to figure out, okay, who's the best player on the Magic? And I threw out, you know, maybe Wendell Carter, maybe it's even Jalen Suggs in his rookie year. And my hot take. Maybe oh it's not that hot a take, but I think that we're going to be talking about Chuma Okiki as the Magic's best player come season's end. If that's the case, then the Magic are going to be you terrible. Yeah, that they're we going know. to be really bad. But you know, I was going to say if that's the case, then we're then we're talking about a guy who's going to be in the most improved player conversation. I, I think it's going to be the kind of season where if he was doing it in like a higher profile situation, then he would be in that conversation. But because it's happening in Orlando, and I think you know a lot of times when those types of leaps happen and a rebuilding situation for a terrible team. The general assumption is just like what you would call looter in a riot, right? Like a guy who is just getting more touches and more shots than he actually deserves. And like somebody needs to get buckets for that team. But I don't think that's going to be the case for him because like I said, I think he just has great feel and he can do it on both sides of the ball. Yeah. And as I've always said, with the whole like looter and riot thing, while there are, a lot of examples of guys who just put up numbers on bad teams or like there are things you can watch eyeball test wise and there are numbers that you can look to from a statistical standpoint like especially from an efficiency standpoint that should very clearly make you realize whether that is the case or it isn't and so just because the guy whether it's chuma or someone else you know put some numbers on a bad team it doesn't necessarily mean that it's like, well, someone's just going to put up those numbers. Like he could be doing it actually in a positive way. And, you know, obviously we're not saying Truman's going to be SGA because we both think SGA is basically a superstar already, if not getting close to it. But like, there, you know, he was a perfect example, as both of us mentioned so many times last year, of a guy putting up really big numbers on a really, really bad team. But not just because someone had to do it. He was actually doing it in a way that was more impressive because he was doing it efficiently with a little help and little talent around him. So, yeah, I... Again, not saying Chuma's going to put up SGA numbers, but I could definitely see him putting up some really encouraging numbers this season, let alone impact, 
and in ways that should not be discounted just because the Magic might be the worst team in the league. Agreed. I got a bunch of kind of like tough yeah, yeah, cuts. Uh, Robert Williams nice. with Boston, I think, has the potential to just have a massive year. Like they, you know, Tristan Thompson's gone. Daniel Tice is gone. They brought Horford back, but I think there's a uh, kind of interesting yin and yang with those two guys where maybe playing them together won't be such an uncomfortable fit. And I just think like the raw tools with Williams are like so tantalizing. And I've talked about him on this pod before. And I think like, what I've said basically is like he will make the kind of undisciplined mistakes that you expect from like a raw young big man, but his physical tools are just like so absurd that he's often able to like erase those mistakes anyway. Like his second jump is crazy. Um, he's got ridiculous length uh, and he can really pass the ball too. I, I think he could be like a really important piece for them and have a big year. Um so that was like my guy who was right on the bubble. And then a few others were um, Rui Hachimura. Uh, I'm kind of expecting big things from him in Washington this year. I loved the way he yep. finished last season. Uh, Pat yes, Williams Pat in Chicago. Yes, Pat Williams is actually one of my tough cuts too. Just because like another thing that we've talked about before, but like they're really going to depend yeah. on him. And because of how thin they are at the four and how thin they are defensively, like he's going to be leaned on a lot. I've been high on him like as a two-way potential guy for a long time. And I think now this might be an example where like, okay, very clearly there's not going to be much of the ball to go around left in Chicago based on the way they've revamped that roster. But while maybe he's not going to get the chance to show off that like two-way ceiling that I think is still there for him, I do think he actually can find a really nice groove and settle into a role as at least on this team, like very much like a defensive specialist, almost defensive anchor type guy. And I think if, you know, if that's the role he first excels in in the NBA, I think that's completely fine for his long-term trajectory. And I actually think he's capable of filling that role on a pretty good team, like right now. And that's like a big reason why I want, like I didn't end up including him obviously in, in like the, you know, my three main spotlight guys. But like the reason that I wanted to include him is... I feel like when we talk about breakout players, we tend to focus more on one side of the ball than on the other. And if a player has a huge defensive breakout, but like doesn't have any real offensive improvement to show for it, like that often flies under the radar. And so I wanted to spotlight a guy who I think could have a big defensive breakout this year. Um, So I had him there. Um, I had Jaden McDaniels there, another like, guy with massive defensive upside in Minnesota um, who I think, you know, they have the same issue, right? Like they're super thin at the four, um, uh, you know, unless or until they trade for Ben Simmons, like (laughs) um, they're going to be depending on McDaniels a lot to make their defense function. Um, And I I think he's a really interesting player who has kind of like, he has Jonathan Isaac type defensive potential. Yeah. We're calling him vaccinated Jonathan Isaac from here on out. Uh, Vaxed Isaac. uh, Malachi Flynn in Toronto, I think. Like, it's tough with him just because, like, I don't actually think that he has starter upside. Like, I just think the the physical limitations with him are, like, I I like his skill set a lot, but he just, like, doesn't have the burst, um, I don't think, to ever really be, like, a starting caliber guard given, like, his sort of small physical stature. Like, he's physically slight and small and like 
you know, he doesn't have elite burst or anything like that. And like, I know the Raptors have taken small statured guys who don't have elite burst and turn them into stars a couple times now um, in the last decade. But I, I think that's just like going to be a really tough path for him. But I, I just really liked what he showed at the end of last season. And I think like he's a good ball handler, a, a much better shooter than what he showed yeah. as a rookie and a very, very smart player. I, I also think, and I think you were mentioning it with uh, with Maxi in Summer League, and it was like, kind of like Flynn the same way. It's like, yeah, you don't want to put too much stock in what they did in Summer League, but guys like that, and Flynn is a good example of this, you also want them to, as second-year guys who got some experience last year, you want them to look out of place in a good way in Summer League, and I think Malachi Flynn very much looked like that. Like, their for, Toronto's first Summer League game, it very much looked like, all right, like Malachi Flynn is too good for summer league let him play his game and a half and then sit him down because uh there's nothing left to gain from this and i think that's what you want from a guy like that and i think he did that um but yeah to your point about him like not really having starter upside i'd say what he looks like to me and it's completely fine is like the guy that can be the sixth or seventh best player like the sixth or seventh man on really good teams for like 10 to 15 years and that's really good if if the 29th pick is that the breakout that I see coming is more like him going from being a pretty rough around the edges rookie to being like, I think he has a chance to be one of the best backup point guards in the league starting this season, but it's just kind of like an unsexy pick because the upside there, I think is still relatively low. Um, And then I had one last guy who I put in sort of a different category and it's similar to like you wanting to pick OG because I feel like, Typically with this exercise, we tend to focus on lesser known commodities and guys that we think will sort of like emerge onto the scene rather than guys who have like been on the scene breaking out into star level players. But the one guy I think I would pick if I was going to, if I was going to pull a name out, you know, of, of a guy who I think is an established player, is a known commodity but could potentially make that jump into like fringe all star territory, it's DeJounte Murray. And another guy who, you know, on that same episode where we were debating about Orlando's best player, we were talking about San Antonio's best player, and we kind of settled on Murray and said, probably outside of Orlando, that's, you know, the worst best player on any team in the league. But at the same time, man, like he, he's so close to putting it all together, I feel like he... He's not as good a playmaker, I feel like, as he should be. He's an excellent open court player who can really struggle offensively in the half court. But like his mid-range jumper looked pretty smooth last year. And if he can just sort of extend that out to the three-point line where he's like banging down, you know, even like 36% of his threes and he's able to do it off the dribble, which like a ton of his mid-range shots were coming off of the bounce last year. And he looked pretty effective at doing that. And then he's just like, you know, absolutely has the potential to be the best defensive guard in the NBA. Like he is that good. And, and I'm like the defense feeds the offense for him too, because he creates a ton of turnovers and he gets out in the open floor where he is a menace. And I think if he just like gets a little bit more of the half court juice, which, you know, a lot of that's just going to come down to the three point shot and the pull-up shot. Um, he could jump into that conversation as being like a fringe all-star. Um, and if, I'm not saying it's necessarily going to happen or I would even say it's probable, but like there's going to be a lot more touches now to go around in San Antonio with DeRozan gone. And he, to me, is the most likely player to like take 
a bunch of those on ball reps and just run with them. Yeah, I think those are all fine choices. And uh, the fact that you had to cut them and I had to cut my guys is another indication as it is every year that there's a lot of good young talent in the NBA and a lot of star talent. And it's tough to kind of break into that. Uh, I think it'll be fun to watch all these guys because even the guys we cut obviously have breakout potential or we wouldn't have mentioned them at all. You got anything else for this week or? I think I'm tapped out. Yeah, man. all right. Now, well, that makes two of us. So let's get to uh, a couple fan shout outs. First one is actually via the Apple podcast reviews and it's B monkey, but the O in monkey is a zero who said shout out to cash and Wolf on the pod is great. And then also shout out cash is also a good Scarborough boy who knows about Samosa King. So I wanted to make sure B monkeys shout out got on there because yes, Samosa King in Scarborough is the best. And I say that obviously with a ton of bias, but also, no shame in that bias of Samosa King at Middlefield and Finch, a staple of Scarborough. Scarborough bias aside, the other fan shout out of the week goes to Luke Obst or Obst, O-B-S-T, who interacts with us often on Twitter. I don't think we've ever given him a shout out. He's in Eckville, Alberta, Canada, and he had, uh, I think, tweeted us a couple weeks ago. It's been a while now, but uh, when we posted our first like post vacation episode a few weeks ago the first one we had done together in a while uh he had just wrote us to saying that uh, that episode was awesome and that he missed us as a duo well we're back luke and uh, we are happy that you're still here with us so there's two fan shout outs this week i've already got a couple in the chamber for next week or for the next couple weeks but please as always if you're a listener of ours hit us up on social media email us hit us up on twitter find me on instagram let us know how long you've been listening, where you're listening from, and we would love to get you a shout out on a future show, whether you reference a Scarborough staple or not. With that, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.